So welcome to the next episode of Can Marketing Save the Planet? And today, Gemma and I are joined by Caroline Taylor, former CMO for IBM's Global Markets. Caroline, it is a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a delight to join you. So let's start then with a bit of an introduction to yourself and your incredibly impressive career. Over to you. Okay, well, I'm not sure about the second bit of that, but certainly I can intro myself. Um, so Caroline Taylor, um, I worked in marketing for, um, oh gosh, forever, uh, lifelong marketer, probably the best way to put it. Um, 30 years of that was in the tech industry, which was accidental, as are quite a few things about my life and career. Um, and uh, I, so I, yeah, I worked various various companies, ended up at IBM uh, accidentally. Uh, I worked for a small American software company, IBM acquired them. I thought, oh, goodness me, IBM, terrible, behemoth, you know, huge, uh, bureaucratic, la, la, la. Um, but actually decided to stay because actually I found that it was an extraordinary place to be and just full of extraordinary opportunity with a, an amazing kind of ethos and an and approach to uh, what it was trying to do in the world. Um, uh, so I started to stay. So I, I had, you know, I did various jobs. Um, I... I secured the role of being head of marketing and communications for uh, IBM United Kingdom and Ireland, which was the best job you could possibly have if you were a business-to-business marketer uh, um, in the tech industry. I mean, what better job could you possibly have? And if you're a Brit, obviously. Um, and that was amazing. Had the had an amazing time doing that. Um, and then on the back of that, I uh, was appointed to head up marketing and communications for IBM in Europe. Uh, and then on the back of that, uh, ended up, running uh, marketing communications for what IBM calls global markets was basically their international business. So um, everything that wasn't a headquarters function sat in uh, sat in my team. Um, and so an extraordinary privilege and opportunity to get to know everybody. And probably the least sustainable thing about me is that I flew literally millions of miles in the air in order to do that job because I would be gathering about the world, visiting teams in from, you know, Auckland to San Francisco and all points in right. between. Um, uh, yeah, so, and, and I guess on the sidelines of that, the joy of working for IBM was that um, very uh, strongly advocate for uh, adding your value elsewhere in the world. Uh, and so lots of volunteering opportunities. So I ended up uh, joining um, boards of charities um, bringing professional experience to bear there, which was quite a surprise to me how much value you can actually get from somebody who's a B2B marketer um, in, a, in a charity, but it turns out there's lots. Um, ended up, you know, being the chair of a board um, and uh, and so did some amazing things and, and the opportunity for those things to align, which was I was the chair of a charity to stop the traffic, which works to prevent human trafficking. And uh, over time, IBM became very involved in that and continued after both I had stepped down as chair of Stop Traffic and also after I had retired from IBM and has continued to support them uh, with some incredible uh, uh, donations of time and technology, um, which has made a huge difference to the work they do. So it's wonderful how all these little bits of your life can come together. So... Has, so was sustainability on your radar back in the days of your jetting around the world? Is it something that, could, yeah. that you've always had, a, a, you know, in your mind? Um, so I think to an, to an extent, yes. I mean, I'd go back uh, probably to the mid-2000s. Um, and there was, a, I mean, obviously that we were talking a lot about sustainability issues back then, just in general in society in the UK particularly uh, and in other parts of Europe. 
Um, and so, so very aware of it, um, very aware of it personally. And I do have a sort of personal view that um, we can all contribute in some way, shape or form. It's none of this like wait for governments to fix it, wait for the UN to fix it, you know, la, la, la. We, we can all play our part. Yeah. Um, and so, so yes, definitely. And down to the fact that, you know, when I was traveling around in Europe back in the 2000s, I would take the train if I could take the train. I mean, sometimes it wasn't possible. Um, just because of how long it would take or, or all of that. But where I could, and I used to be amazed. I mean, for example, um, oh, some years ago, I, I ended up, I was in Madrid and I had to be in, um, I had to be in Paris like the same day. So I ended up flying and I flew to Charles de Gaulle and I was like very discombobulated thinking, I haven't been here for so, so long. And I realized that I hadn't been to Charles de Gaulle airport since. The Eurostar started operating because once Eurostar was there, why on earth would you fly to Paris? Yeah. Um, and so, so, I, so, you know, I was kind of aware of trying to make some, you know, personal choices around stuff like that where you could, um, or where it was perhaps to be fair, where it was easy. Um, but I got really, really focused, I guess, in the mid 2000s from a business perspective because, well, I guess, it, yeah, multiple reasons, but, um, uh, IBM was doing some work around what in those days was phrased green IT. And there was this big thing that was buzzing around at the time was that, that, that 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions, and this is like way back, 2% were down to IT. So it was all of us with our computers, but really it was everybody with their servers and their data centers and all of that. And, you know, burning up all that electricity, both with the running of them and the cooling of them. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was sort of seen as a, as an issue. You know, we, we, we yeah. were a cost. We were a greenhouse gas cost in the tech industry. Um, and I was very struck with this notion of, yeah, okay, but what about the other 98% and how might you use technology to mitigate there? How might you use technology to get way smarter? And even down to the fact that here we were all on Zoom, um, you know, and we could, in theory, have got in cars or on trains or buses or whatever and, and traveled to be in the same physical location. But we don't need to. And this is way more carbon efficient than doing than doing the travel. Um, so yeah, so so uh, that really got me very 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 focused, and um, and so I became quite a pain in the neck to a lot of people at IBM uh, because there was quite a narrow set of thinking about most of my, many of my colleagues. Perhaps not most of the unfair many of my colleagues at that time about what you know, what this might be, um, and but I but I kind of got a bit you know. I got a bit fixated um, and realized that there was, you know, so much and started talking to amazing colleagues who were already doing amazing work. And then interestingly, started to hear back talking to consultants and salespeople that some of our clients, some of our clients who were the more um, uh, sustainability, environmentally savvy clients were starting to ask questions about um, how carbon efficient we would be in delivering whatever thing was we were proposing to do for them. And that started to get, get me really interested because of some like, oh, here's a new point of differentiation. It's really hard, you know, the tech industry, particularly in things like hardware, where, you know, there was not so much differentiation in, in honesty between product A and product B, but how you might deliver the service, how you might deliver the outcome for that customer, that client. Um, if you could find these ways to differentiate, then you can give yourself an advantage. And so, and, and I think that was kind of a bit of a pivotal moment, really. It's interesting you say being a bit of a pain in the neck because, <laughs> you know, that is, there is that kind of pester power, isn't there, that, oh, that, is, yes. that is required um, 
to bring people on board. And I mean, you're, yes, and it's interesting, again, that you've, that, that there is this, again, positioning as a marketer, like, oh, what are the benefits here that we can sell this in? Here's a point of differentiation, or here's a cost saving, or, you know, looking for the, the positives to, to, to bring this in. But even so, I mean, this is an enormous corporation with, you know, thousands of, of employees. And I mean, significant thousands. So, so how did you, with your pester power, as well as, okay, yes, there are some benefits here and this could be a differentiator. How, how did this all start to join the dots internally? Mm-hmm. Because internally, there needed to be a, a, a very extensive conversation, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think it was a few things. Um, one was finding the kindred spirits, the other people, uh, and there were some amazing people down our consulting business who were already doing, they were starting to think about carbon management as, a, as, a, as an offering to clients. You know, how can we as consultants help you to manage and reduce your carbon impact? Because carbon is a, is, is not just a cost of the planet, but it's a cost of your business. And, and you know, again, back in the mid 2000s, uh, you know, mid 90s, um, you know, it's lots of uh, lots of thinking, lots of uh, supposition about how where this might go and everything, carbon taxes and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so there was that. Um, I was very lucky. Um, uh, my my boss at the time uh, said, "Well, let me see what was I doing at that point." I, so I I moved into a role as the um, director of marketing for the consulting business in Europe. So that was helpful. My boss, who was a CMO for Europe at the time, was willing to listen to my wittering. And um, got me in front of the uh, general manager for IBM in Europe, uh, and um, took me several attempts to have a to sort of get to a place where he got what I was saying, which is probably more on me than him. But um, I think in my first attempts, I wasn't I wasn't clear enough on why this was a business opportunity. I was more yeah. about this is a really important thing to do. You know, very overexcited about it all. Um, uh, so I think that was, you know, was a massively important learning. But anyway, got in front of them. Uh, and then the other thing that was really interesting, and the context here is that, you know, I'm in this big American corporation, and, and I think it has changed over the years, but back then, there were very few initiatives that, 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 that went global eventually that came out of anywhere other than the US. And back in the mid-noughties, the US just wasn't as tuned into this as we were here yeah. in, in Europe. You know, Europe was just, you know, it was it was more of a societal issue. People were talking about it more. Um, and, and in the US, they just it wasn't quite there at that point. Um, not not the same in the same place. But we were very fortunate that, that um, our global CMO was an amazing guy called John Awasa. And, and, and he was willing to listen and he was willing uh, to um, uh, let us try some stuff from a marketing perspective. So, you know, building out this new sort of practice in the consulting business, that was down, that was down to them. They, they did some great, they did some amazing work. Um, but also, and as I say, there's all this kind of green IT stuff. And, oh, and I should just add, IBM have been hugely focused on environmental issues. So they had their first, I'm going to get this wrong because it's been a while. I left in 2020. So, um, but I think it was 72 or three, they had their first environmental protection policy document that they published so like way way back and that was partly about some manufacturing and not poisoning rivers and some of that kind of stuff um the first u.s environmental protection agency policy that was published in the u.s was actually written on the back of some ibm work again back in the mid-70s so yeah so so this has always been a thing you know they didn't yes. thought about this this wasn't new yeah um but John Awata was willing to give us a give us a go to let us do some stuff in Europe and try it. 
So we got given budget and permission to run a carbon reduction ad campaign uh, in in Europe. Um, and our ad agency, Ogilvy Major at the time, did some unbelievably brilliant work, uh, brilliant creative work, and that was super cool. Um, and I think that that was a sort of a bit of a pivot point, a bit of a tipping point, because um, that got that was really positively received, got you know very good responses and everything. And it was just you know, very high levels, really kind of branding. It wasn't you know it wasn't wasn't direct response advertising or anything like that. Ill. But it gave us a sort of footholds and started to get more a few more people to go, actually, that, that you know, these guys are on something and we should we should continue to explore it. We shouldn't shut it down and, we, uh, and all of that. So I think those, those I had two lucky breaks in that people that were willing to, to to sort of go with the flow a little, even though maybe uh, they weren't quite as tuned into the issues and the opportunities as some of us were um, in, in the UK and other parts of Europe. I think you said something really interesting there when you said it was how do you talk about this as a business opportunity as opposed to this is a really important thing we need to be doing. And I think there's a really fine line, isn't there, there yeah. of your heart tells you this is really important and there is a yeah. massive sort of cause behind this. But actually, when you take that into an internal conversation within your business, you do have to step into, don't you, that this is a business opportunity as much yeah. as it sometimes hurts to have to turn yeah. into that. Oh, so true. And, you know, I think that was really formative for me in my career, Gemma, because um, I think, I think, and this to sound really dumb, but I think up to that point, I was a marketer rather than a business person in as much as I was all about uh, doing great marketing, super creative, uh, you know, very focused on results, all of those good things but really led by what the business was asking for. And it was the, this was the first time I'd sort of gone, oh, there's a business opportunity here that we, that we should be going to grab and learning how to shift my focus from here's a brilliant marketing idea to here's a brilliant business idea. Yeah. It's going to make us money. Our shareholders will love us because we're going to make profit for them. But it's going to be tapping into something that's really important societally at the same time, which is a win-win-win. So, and I think that was quite—it was. I mean, talk about you know, like rapid learning and all that. But yes, exactly. And I, I don't believe, truly, to this day, that any organisation is going to invest in uh, sustainability strategies that aren't good for their business. Why would they? You know, I mean, just at the end of the day, we, we have to be realistic. And I wish on a lot to anybody who'll listen about enlightened self-interest. And, and, and the enlightenment is important, okay, but the self-interest is real. You know, it's how, it's how yeah. corporations run. And, and, and we have to think about, we have to think about um, all of our, all of our stakeholders and, and the what's in it for them uh, in order to get people to come with us and, and invest in whatever the idea or thing might be. And, um, about so I sort of already started this journey and, I, and then I'm gonna again I'm gonna get this wrong but I think it would have been 2008. Um uh, our newish CEO a guy called Sam Parmesano uh he that was when they when they nothing to do with with me at all just to be clear but that's when they um I guess him John Water other very senior people in headquarters had had started to come up with this notion of what eventually became IBM Smarter Planet branding and strategy. Um, and, and that was really pivoting off the financial crisis. Um, and, 
and the reality that we can't keep, you know, we can't keep going on like this. And that was kind of an economic perspective. Our clients can't keep going on like this. It has to be a different way. It has to be a better way. Um, but one of the things that really caught my attention amongst many in that moment in let's say 2008, I'm, I'm assuming I'm right, um, is that South Thomas only talked about needing to needing to have great answers to four questions. And the questions are, as a corporation, why would anybody want to buy from us? Why would anybody want to work for us? Why would anybody want to invest in us? Why would anybody allow us to operate in their community, society, backyard, whatever? You need to have really great questions for all four of those fundamental stakeholder groups. Because without them, you're not going to succeed. And I think that sustainability, that, 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 that looked like, was like written in, you know, letters of fire in my head because I just thought, that's it. That's absolutely it. If you're not on the sustainability point, if you're not thinking about people, planet and profit in balance, you don't have good answers to those four questions. Yeah. You know, we can all think of many examples right here today in the UK of companies who clearly don't think about that and clearly don't have great answers to those and literally are just waiting to be regulated into oblivion um, and forced to do what they should be doing anyway. But instead of doing it and getting competitive advantage, they are going to wait and be regulated and eventually die. Um metaphorically um so anyway so i just that to me that was another kind of like huge oh my goodness that was another kind of that's a moment and that's a that's that another sort of point of education of you're going to think about finding that point of enlightened self-interest that business opportunity you have to be able to articulate it in those four contexts as four stakeholder groups yeah i love those questions and uh, i've got books on my shelves with those titles actually by um, <laughs> Goffrey Jones uh, and 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 others, but um, but yes. Yeah, so so that's leadership was. You say it was lucky, but I mean, you know, you were already championing and doing what you could around this and uh, built that business case. Which you know, as we said, that that is marketing, not sitting on its hands, not just delivering, but actually looking at the strategic opportunities and and standing up and saying, you know, in our in our sustainable marketer manifesto one of the things we say is get really educated and aware about what's going on so that you have the confidence to spot these opportunities so that you yeah. have the confidence to speak up and speak out within the business to say actually you know this is an opportunity this is a business proposition and yeah. so that was really brilliant to hear that you know you recognize that you saw that and then of course it was dovetailed by what was going on with this leadership team, with this focus, who clearly were looking at the economic landscape and, and looking at what was going on with their key stakeholders and saying, actually, mm. we need to do something different. And that moment mm. of actually sustainability isn't just, it is about people and planet, but it is also about the sustainability of this business. And, Absolutely. And this is where this is where it does seem quite, almost jaw-dropping sometimes because it's it's almost like seriously are, are businesses not looking at the landscape what what do you think is going on there Caroline? Um, I think we have a perfect example and I work in the field of education now so I think we have a perfect example right in front of us right here right now with this RAAC concrete issue in our public school you know um, public schools um, no, no new problems for decades known serious problems since 2018 three incidents over the school summer holidays and suddenly schools have been closed and there's all crisis and chaos 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 and it's like 
people people know it's out there, but they choose to do the other thing. You know, yeah. they put it off. They don't they don't get on with it. I, I don't think the people are stupid. I think that they choose to look the other way. You know, yeah. Um, and you can actually see that in so many societal issues, frankly. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a very weird. It's a very weird aspect of. I mean, it's. I think it's part of the human condition, but I think it's a very weird aspect of running a business. Yeah. To consistently look the other way and not realize, because I remember way back, you know, looking up the dictionary definition of sustainability for a presentation I was doing, and and the one that caught my eye, there's all several out there, was the capacity to endure. Yes. I mean, you know, that 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 is so that that is the most fundamental thing for any business, you know, and and so the capacity to endure keep going, still be around, not be a dinosaur, you know. Um, I love that cartoon, by the way. It's a wonderful cartoon does it around on the internet every now and then, and it's a couple of dinosaurs, and they're, they're looking at a meteor streaking across yes. the sky, and one of them saying, you know, it would be really embarrassing if we'd known this was going to happen and we could have prevented it. Exactly. And I just, you know, and, I, and it really strikes me because that's, you know, that's how an awful lot of uh, organisations certainly are operating um, today. So... Uh, yeah, I, I I also think it's much easier to just do the thing you've always done, yeah. you know, and just get on with making that nice profit because the reality is you do have to invest in it. So your, your profits are going to have to take a hit. Yes. You're going to have to spend some of your profit in order to, to do this. Again, I mean, I you know, the here and now in the UK, the water industry, it's fascinating, isn't it, that, you know, years and years go by, dividends get paid, which is lovely if you're an investor, Dividends get paid, and then suddenly, when the you know what literally hits the beach as well as the fan, um, they go, "Oh, but we're going to have to charge more to find the money to do the things that need to be done to stop all this bad stuff happening." And you go like, "But you have had the money. Yeah. You could have made these choices twenty years ago. You know, yeah. you could have still had dividends, but maybe they would have been half the size, yes. and you wouldn't be in this mess right now, and nor would the rest of us." Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, it is a really interesting facet of business that people don't. It's, it's, the, it's that short termism. Yeah. I understand it's driven by you know quarterly reporting and you know Wall Street or you know uh, you know the, the City of London, the the, the investors, the, the pension funds deciding whether or not they're going to invest in you because whether you're a good deal or not. Um, but the reality is that, that, you know, pensions need to be there for the long term. People need them to be strong and safe 30 years hence, not not next week, or not only next week. Um, and so, so it is it's that short-termism thing, isn't it? You, you, you have to make some tough choices. You have to yeah. make some, you have to do some interesting prioritisation as a business. But that's why I think this enlightened self-interesting thing is so interesting because, I know for a fact IBM one business over the years, I can I can think of very specific instances back in the sort of I don't know, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, that kind of time frame. Very specific instances where they definitely won the business because everything about what they were offering and the competitors offering was broadly the same, but we had the advantage of being able to do it as a low with a lower carbon footprint and the client cared about that, for example. Yeah. Um and uh, and so ultimately it's back to marketing, isn't it? You know, yeah. marketing and marketing, it's all about understanding the market, the client. I was used to joke to our grad intakes that the reason that, that they really need to understand that marketing is about the market, 
first and foremost. It is. And whilst marketing the product and offering into the market is an important part of the job, if it was all about the damn product, it would be called producting, not marketing. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and so, you know, so trying to get everybody really, really focused on that and understanding that landscape, understanding what the customer needs, what outcome they are seeking. Yeah. And how do how do we monetize that? How do we monetize their positive outcomes? That's ultimately, I guess, what any business is about. Yeah. And you mentioned you mentioned that that cartoon of the two dinosaurs and the meteorite. The the modern day one version that's happening right now is is the people standing in front in Death Valley in front of the temperature <sighs> gauge and having their photos taken, like with 52, 55 degrees with thumbs up and you Someone just put the caption behind that and it's, it is it is exactly the same, isn't it? The, yeah. the dots are not being connected. Absolutely, absolutely. It's terrifying, really. It is. But you talk about marketing, you know, marketing, and this is how Michelle and I kind of got, the, got I guess, the, the bit between our teeth once we wrote, Research and wrote the first book and, and were like, wow, <laughs> this is, uh, we have a huge job and a huge opportunity ahead of us. But they wow. really are, marketing really is a key enabler, isn't it, of, of driving that positive change. And, yes. and there's still very much a mindset, though, of, of consumption. And we're here to drive consumption. So, in your role as a CMO, how did you approach changing the mindsets of your, of the, the teams and the people that were, 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 in, were in your function? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I have first of all had the good fortune to work in B two B, which is much less about consumption. You know, so you're not trying to persuade people to buy things they don't need, uh, or persuade people they do need things. You know, um, uh, etc. Um, uh, so that was, I, I guess, that was helpful. Um, and I think, I think it was this this ability to get people to think about marketing as much more than Marcom. You know, yeah. I think that, I mean, that ultimately, that was the, and that sounds derisive, I don't mean it like that, because amazing marketing communications have had incredible impact and, and, and will continue to do so. And it's hugely important because actually the people who have those skills are the ones who are really good at convincing people to do the right thing and then to do it right. Um, but I think that, I think that just getting the focus, uh, getting the focus, um, uh, onto getting the focus onto the market, getting the focus onto the customer, um, and then considering what is it that they need. And, and the thing that's interesting is that I mean, if I go back uh, 2010, so it isn't like it's like a lifetime ago, really, isn't it? 13 years ago, yeah. 2010, talking to CEOs of very large UK companies, there wasn't one who wasn't on this, thinking about this, trying to work out. Um, what they were going to do about it, what they're going to do about it that their shareholders would allow, that their board would allow, that that their employees would be on board with and come with them. Um, so that was now. To be fair, I suppose I didn't speak to many CEOs who didn't give a monkey's about it. Yeah, uh, and I'm not suggesting they weren't out there. They probably just weren't very interested in talking to us. Um, but I, but I, so yeah. So I think I think a lot of it is about it, it is. It is so much about outcome, you know. Yeah. So, if your if your mission as a as a as a business is to sell lots of a thing, whatever the thing might be, um, the trouble with that is that's rather simplistic, isn't it? Why would anybody want that thing? Uh, how does it help them? How does it improve their 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 life or or, or whatever? And really uh, figuring out whatever the client's motive, the customer's motivation is, how do I address that? In a really uh, 
planet positive way, uh, people planet profit positive way. So I'm in business, so I want to make money, um, you know, and um, I want people, I want to keep people happy and I want people to keep advancing. And um, but I but I need to do it in a planet positive way as well, because that is the only sensible answer for the long term. Um, and and I, I fear that the that the challenge, that the the consumption challenge uh, is still massive for all of us because there are such strong vested interests in how uh, in how profits are made and it is very easy and simple unfortunately it seems in today's world to drive consumption by making things appealing i i, I just finished reading um uh, chris van Trulican's uh, new book on ultra processed food which is a new and and, and you know I, I i i find myself shocked even though i'm sort of aware of those issues but you know, there is a there is a motivation to make stuff that people will want to eat more of than is I good know. for them. And there is zero desire, uh, quite the opposite, in fact, amongst the large multinationals that make a lot of this stuff to change that. Um, and they will fight you to nerves. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, eat all the Pringles you like. They're not bad. You eat potatoes, sort of-ish. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, potatoes good, potatoes good, potatoes very good source of vitamin C. You know, la la la. I mean, so uh, yeah. it, it's it's. I think the consumption thing, Janet, is a massive challenge. And yeah. I, what do you do? Do you get all the best markets in the world to vote with their feet and not be willing to work for those companies? Because I, I think the harsh commercial economic reality for individual humans is that's a really tough thing to ask people to do. Yeah. Um, and people will, some people will do it, but lots of people will feel they don't really have a choice. Um, and so an awful lot of it is going to be about taking all the smart marketers who really care and getting them outside of their day jobs to figure out how to use all those marketing skills to educate and, and engage and empower people to make, to, to make better choices. Yeah. To be aware, I, I, the Chris Antonio thing is a really interesting, sorry, it's a bit of a segue, but it's a really interesting example because his point is don't tell people not to eat it. Yeah. Make people aware of what's in it and what that might be doing to them, and then let them make their choice. Um, it's not about it. It's not about guilting people. It's not about uh, telling people what to do. It's not about him being smarter than the rest of us. It's just like be aware, be aware of what's in it before yeah. you eat it. Yeah. And you know there is some anecdotal evidence that that definitely has an impact on people if if, if they are. But yeah, you know I, I appreciate that most people don't have time if they go around the supermarket to read every ingredients label and every pack they might pick up. Yeah. And I, also, I wish I had a good answer. I also, yeah. I also think your marketing would look very different, wouldn't it, if you had to uh, decide to share that? I mean, how do you market that in a positive way that it will slowly block <laughs> you from the inside out? It's not really a feature or benefit, is it? It, it, it isn't. You know, the funny thing is, um, back in the day, I can remember a long time ago, People have always been quite unkind about B2B marketing. It's, you know, there's a lot less sexy than um, a lot of the sort of FMCG stuff, for example. And um, uh, I was in a meeting many, many years ago, and this guy stood up and he said, you know, the thing is, if we were, if we suddenly took this marketing team from this tech company and and, um, in, and planted them into Coke and asked them to market Coke, you would end up, well, I think we actually don't, 
wrong example, Pepsi, instead of the lip smacking, do you remember all of that? La la la. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, the lip smacking, first coaching, da 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 thing. So, Pepsi all those years ago. You'd have people marketing brown sugar water and you'd be talking about bubble size and velocity because that's how tech was marketed back in the 90s, you know, um, a very feature function yeah. and, um, and not at all about outcome, you know, yeah. uh, which is interesting because the, the FMCG is always about outcome. It's like having this amazing experience with this, yeah. this lip-smacking, first-quenching drink, you know, yeah. which is going to rot your teeth and your guts, but never exactly. mind about that because that's yeah. detail. Yeah. Um, so I, anyway, I just think it's a very, uh, I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a, such a challenge. And it's, I think it's why organizations like Marketing Kind and, and others like them that are getting marketers to figure out how to use their amazing power, because they yes. are superpowers, aren't they? Yeah. Yep. To, 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 to get people to think differently and more broadly. Uh, you know, it's easy to get a bit religious about this, isn't it? And just think you need to proselytize and yes. evangelize and tell everybody they're wrong. And that's not the point, is it? The no. point is to get people to figure out what the right thing is for themselves. I think think it's education and awareness. You know, it's about Gemma and I were in the same situation. You know, it was only when we started researching and writing and becoming more aware and more educated. You know, I I thought I knew so much. And then you start looking into things. It's like, I'm still shocked. I'm still surprised, you Mm -hmm. know, and Mm -hmm. and then it changes you. And then you think, okay, we want to make some different choices. And and. There is that, there is that option of being a marketer and making a decision. You know, am I feeling that I'm part of the problem or am I feeling that I'm part of that solution? And, and which side of bed do you want to get out of, you know, every morning? Which, what makes you feel like you are making a difference? And I think once we're educated and aware, then for some people, I appreciate economically it can be a challenge, but with the growth of more social impact businesses, then marketers can use their skills, creativity and influence in those territories to kind of grow and scale them so that these these other organizations that just aren't looking forward and aren't prepared to invest in solutions that may become the dinosaurs, then they get left behind because we've got all these hundreds of millions of wonderful innovative social impact businesses that are focused on people planets as well as driving profits yeah yeah absolutely absolutely hey sorry to interrupt but we're gonna have to leave things there for this episode we knew at this point that we would have so much more to talk to caroline about so join us again in two weeks time when we carry on this wonderful conversation and look at some of the tactical stuff delve into the opportunity for marketing And start to look at one area that so many organisations are questioning right now, which is, what do you measure? Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you in two weeks time.